This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Our guest speaker, as I think most of you know, is one of the most compelling political figures in America today. Having captivated people across our country for her her unwavering efforts to protect voting rights and for her, her historic race for the governorship of Georgia last year. Stacey Abrams is a lawyer, entrepreneur, politician, advocate and activist, mentor and teacher, devoted daughter, sister and aunt, Star Trek junkie, admirer, admirer of George Eliot, fantasy pop singer, and if any of you saw her on Stephen Colbert's show recently, you know that she's also the author of romance novels, the first one completed during her third year at Yale Law School. Now, unlike Colbert, we are not going to read any steamy passages from her works of fiction tonight, uh, which, by the way, she penned under a pseudonym, Selena Montgomery. And we're not going to do that because tonight she's actually here as Stacey Abrams, an author of very real-life nonfiction. She'll be discussing her book, Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change, which she describes as part memoir, part advice, and part alchemy. In its pages, you'll learn about her trials and triumphs from her own life, from not being awarded her prize for winning a middle school essay contest because the white woman issuing the award couldn't believe a black girl had won, to verbally challenging the iconic African-American mayor of Atlanta, whose views about Rodney King riots seemed outdated and out of touch. Hers is an inspiring story of a woman pushing boundaries, demanding justice, and busting doors open for millions of others who have historically been dismissed or ignored. From her book, readers will also get her advice about how those excluded from traditional American power structures, women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, and others can learn to have the confidence to take chances, learn from failure, stick to their guns, and demand to be seen, heard, and respected, or in her words, to lead from the outside. The lessons that Stacy has absorbed throughout her career have propelled her to success in many fields, most notably in politics as the minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives and as the first African-American woman gubernatorial nominee of a major party in the history of America. And just because I can't help help myself to add this editorial footnote, let's just say that if the voting system in Georgia hadn't been rigged and corrupted, we'd we would be introducing Stacey Abrams tonight as the governor of Georgia. But don't worry, she's only getting started on her political trajectory. And speaking of which, before she comes on stage, I thought maybe we would just help her out a little bit because, you know, she has a lot of decisions looming. Um, so I thought maybe we would just do a quick poll right here tonight. How many of you think Stacey Abrams should run for the U.S. Senate seat in Georgia against David Perdue in 2020? Okay. Next question on the poll. Next question. How many of you think Stacey Abrams should run for president in 2020? Well, whichever way you're voting, clearly bigger things are in store for her. And thank goodness that means in store for all of us. And I know if you're like me, we we all can't wait to see what the future holds. 
Uh, we're also so grateful tonight to have a wonderfully talented veteran broadcast journalist here to be in conversation with Stacy. Brooke Baldwin is anchor of CNN Newsroom every day between 2 and 4 p.m. In fact, Stacey Abrams was with her earlier today. Um, she's also the creator and host of the network's digital series, American Woman, which showcases women who've broken barriers in their fields and gone on to support other women breaking barriers of their own. Please join me in welcoming Stacey Abrams and Brooke Baldwin. Hey, y'all. Hello. How many Georgians in the audience? Let me hear you. <laughs> Did you vote? <laughs> so That wasn't rhetorical. Uh, <laughs> um, this is amazing. Thank you for asking me to do this. Absolutely. Thank you all for coming out. And let's start on... So I met Stacy. Uh, she was kind enough to let me spend an hour of uh, her time at her home in Atlanta last year for my series, American Woman in Politics. And I had done all my homework. I did all my research. Was so prepared. We wrap this interview. You don't even know what I'm about to, I to say. <laughs> we, we wrap this interview and she drop, she drops this bombshell on me. I had not read this about you. You are a total Dr. Seuss nerd. Oh, God, yes. Full-fledged Dr. Seuss nerd. And so my first question tonight, in the vein of Dr. Seuss, I mean, I knew the interview had gone well when she starts showing me her first edition books. <laughs> Which Dr. Seuss book best encapsulates who you are today? Yertle the Turtle. Did you see... Just like that. Yertle the Turtle, ladies and gentlemen. It's about leadership. Tell it's me why. About, Tell me why. So Yertle the Turtle, most people do not remember Yertle. Um, <laughs> Give us a refresher. So Yertle the Turtle is a turtle who is trying to sort of lead and they need to achieve something. And so it, I'm not going to give the whole story away, but... <laughs> For everyone going home to buy Yertle, Yertle the Turtle. has to be part of constructing a pathway forward. So I love Yertle the Turtle. So you are effectively Yertle. I try. So on this pathway forward and carving your way um, as a leader, let's talk about your book, Leading from the Outside. And so That is the most interesting segue into my book. You I like have that? Have you had. ever gotten that before? From Yertle the Turtle until the... I hope you remember me forever for that. I will. Um, you, you say that this is your version of the art of war, except it's it's for outsiders and minorities who are trying to find their way to success. And what's really fascinating for anyone who has not yet read this book, I mean, it is a it's like a career manual workbook for any any age. You corrected me on my show earlier because I said it's for young people, and you said, "Oh no, expanded. It's for everyone." And there are exercises at the end of each chapters, and I'm just curious why this format of a book was important for you. So first of all, Brooke, I want to tell you, thank you. You mm -hmm. did an extraordinary series in 2018 that lifted up women and the role we should play in not only politics, but in the body politic. And so thank you so much for your voice. You did an amazing job. Thank you. 
I wanted to write a how-to guide. That was my intent. I wanted to, I'd been giving speeches for the last few years and often people would ask me, how did I get to be the, the minority leader? How did I start this company? Uh, why am I you know, able to do these things? Sure. And I would make up answers uh, enough to fill up a speech. <laughs> but I started believing what I was saying. I'm like, well, that's actually quite clever. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to write it down in part because I, I thought that what I'd been able to accomplish, I certainly haven't done all the things I wanted to do, but I'd gotten close to doing a lot of what I wanted to see. And when I pitched the book the first time, the agent I spoke to said, well, what's your story? Are you going to tell your story? And I said, no, like, I, I'm, I'm not interesting enough for a memoir. No, I, I, mean, I wasn't being self-deprecating. I've read memoirs. Some of them are good. A lot of folks need to just have a diary. <laughs> and I did not want to be that person who, who should have just been journaling very intensively. <laughs> And so what became Lead from the Outside was really my attempt to write my how-to guide. But what he impressed upon me, and actually Rebecca Traster said it too, was that I wasn't writing a memoir. I was explaining that I had authority to tell the story. Mm. I was explaining, you can tell people to do something, but they're not going to believe you if you can't show them you know what you're talking about. And so the structure of the book really came about because I then tried to dissect what were the steps that led me to where I am and what are the questions I have that no one ever answered for me? So that if I'd had me or someone like me who could have told me these things or people who did tell me, I just didn't know I should have been listening. Mm -hmm. What would that have been? And that's the book. So let's start when you're at Spelman. Yes. Spelman. You've got all the trigger words wow. today. Georgia Spellman. What else do I have in me? So, all right. So you're at Spellman. This is, this is uh, to, to, to get to your point you were just making. So you're at Spellman. You're 18. Chad breaks up with you. Yes. Chad breaks up with Stacy. Yes, he did. I mean, you can feel the little bit of the bit of pain in the book. I'm still mad, but <laughs> and you decide, whatever, Chad, I'm gonna map out my life to get over you. Yes. So, if I may, Stacy's ambitions at age 18: being mayor of Atlanta by 35, buying your parents a house. Being a millionaire by 30. Did not do that one. <laughs> and in charge of a corporation and you go on and on. And you said this point, the point was to let yourself, quote, experience the feeling of wanting itself. You said it helped you know that you were allowed to dare to want. What does being allowed to dare to want mean? So when Chad and I broke up, I mean, part of it was my fault, maybe. Um <laughs> But he made this comment about how I was going to die alone and lonely. He said I would. <gasps> oh, he was he was mad. Chad, so he where said, "Where is Chad today?" I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was it was a rough patch. And basically, what he said is, you know, you don't you, you don't like because I'm I'm not an animal person. He's like, you don't like animals. You don't like people. You're, all you're going to have are your books. And you're not going to get any, you're not going to accomplish anything because you're going to push everyone away. Mm -hmm. Like, I clearly should have started earlier. So anyway, so, <laughs> but he, it hurt and, and it was, it resonated for me because I was, I, I was like, what do I want? Yeah. If I thought I wanted you and you don't want me and I'm not this terrible person who is 
unlovable. And so I was in the, the, the computer room. And so I'm starting to do this. I'm starting to write out what I want. And the more I wrote, the more I imagined what I wanted. And, and part of it is we are so trained, especially those of us who are not from normative communities of success. We are so trained to limit our ambitions to what we've seen accomplished. Mm. And it's a self-perpetuating prophecy that you're not going to get much further because you only can see so far. And part of what I want people to understand is you can see as far as you can imagine that we have to actually let ourselves cast our ambitions beyond our imagination, beyond the shores of what we know. Uh, you know I'm about to quote Moana, but you know, <laughs> you know how far I'll go. You, you, you want to, I watch a lot of TV and movies. Um, I learn a lot from Disney, uh, but the, the mission is to, to create so much space that you're filling your life trying to get to all of these places. And for so many of us, we are told to be bounded by our race, our gender, our age, our economics, and you're not supposed to go beyond that because you're, we're afraid of what's beyond. And I want it to dare, because it is a daring thing to say you want something. I mean, when I mentioned in a Cosmo article that mm -hmm. I dared to want to be president, you would have thought that I'd cursed at them. Like, oh my God, how dare you express ambition? And this is 2017 when I'm running for governor. And so you said if, this was an ambition I some said, years from now. Yes. And the, the Republicans went rip something else. Uh, but, but their reaction is a reminder of why this is so important because there are going to be those who the minute you state your ambition, tell you it's not valid, tell you why you can't have it, tell you why it's not for you. And we immediately shrink in. And instead of saying, I can want what I want, we start to figure out why they're right. And the minute you get paralyzed by their summation of your capacity, you are never going to move again. So you're making this spreadsheet. We're post-Chad. We're moving on. We're yes. getting older, Stacey Abrams. And yes. you've updated to Excel. Aren't you fancy? Yes. And you write, when you decide what you want and why you want it, take action immediately do not wait for an invitation to act. So let's talk about immediately acting. When will you decide if you're running for the U.S. Senate? I'm going to try to do it in this month. And, and here's, here's why the delay. When I wrote this book uh, back in 2017, it came out in 2018. I was on the cover of Time magazine and no one bought my book because I could not promote it because I was running for office. I need my publisher to like me. <laughs> and so my, they, when they decided to reissue the book, I made it my responsibility. My first job is to make certain I do this book tour. That is my obligation. I want to be respectful of those who want to run. And, and while anybody can run, and I've encouraged everyone who's talked to me about running for the Senate, you do what God, you do what you want to do. I understand that I am acting as a bit of a stopgap for some So folks. you're telling Chuck Schumer you need to sell a book? I've told Chuck Schumer I will make a decision and he will know what I'm going to do as soon as possible. Okay. My mission is to... But, I mean, you want answers, right? I'm the hero. I want, like, look, I want answers too. Yeah. <laughs> This is hard. Yeah. And, and it's hard because part of what I try to talk about here is that you don't do things just because they're there. 
you do things because you're the right person for it and because it's right for you. Mm. And I need to be sure. Yeah. I'd not thought about this in it. That was never on my spreadsheet. Even as I updated it with every algorithm, I've never put that down. I'm a deliberate person and the investigation of what this means, because it's not about running for an office. It's about doing a job. Running for the office is the easy part. Do I want to do this job for six years, 12 years, 18 years? I need to plan for that to be my life if this is what I do. And I was a little unhappy for a few months after November. You don't make decisions out of anger or certainly not out of sadness. And so I've had to give myself space to really figure out, is this the right thing? And I'm getting close to a solution and an answer and then I'll tell everybody. Can I just ask and pry for a second? Did you, did you finally give yourself a minute to mourn that loss? Oh yeah. Not enough. I I took a five day vacation. I had to, where'd you go? I went to Turks and Caicos. Yeah. I see. I hear it's beautiful. I didn't get to go outside the hotel more than once though. Why? Uh, Well, it was, it was lovely, but the first day I went out, apparently the internet is in Turks and Caicos. And so after a while, the <laughs> taking the photos on the beach, on the way to the beach, uh, on the way back from uh, the beach. No, and, and, and I don't, I don't begrudge anyone. I appreciate the fact that I had that effect on people that it wasn't just me. It was what that moment could mean for folks, mm-hmm. but it meant that I was not going to get to sit on a beach and read. So I got to stay in my hotel, had gotcha. a lovely balcony and I could hear the ocean and I got to read my book, gotcha. but I did not get to spend as much time. I got you. So, um, what about, Back to your ambition spreadsheet. Yep. Um, how old were you when you first wrote down that you wanted to be the president of the United States? 21. I met a good friend actually here in D.C. He and I had known each other. Uh, we'd met in a program and we, we were both selected for a summer program here in D.C. And he said, you should, he asked me to go to lunch. And I'm like, okay. And he said, you know, you're going to be president one day. And I'm like, president of what? <laughs> he was like president of the United States. I'm like, you're so funny. I mean, my highest ambition was being a uh, mayor. And he said, look, he's like, I've watched you now for two years. I think you could do this. It's going to, you're going to have to work on some things. And, but I think that's something you could be. And I, I want to help you. Now the arrogance of two 21 year olds thinking about how to plot their way to the presidency. It's pretty good. That's pretty rich. But I went home that summer and I was like, Hmm. I mean, why not? So I wrote it down and I said 2028 because that's as early as I could imagine a black woman could be president in the United States. So, 2028. So that 2028. Was in, um, that was in 1995. So. Okay, 1995. So now here we are in 2019 and this is something you are genuinely contemplating yes. as well is running to be the president of the United States. Correct. And as you do that, you know, your critics would say, uh, all right, you've run companies, you have been the minority leader on the state level. Who do you think you are running to be the president of the United States? Present president may be excluded from that conversation. But, but I don't think you need to. I, I, part of management, I mean, the presidency is about management, leadership, and problem solving. Those are skills I have. It is about knowing that you are, 
It's about knowing you're not an autocrat and that you have to build a team that is capable of being responsive to the needs of those you serve. It is about understanding that the, the world is wide and, and knowing it. And I've done that work. I've been involved and I understand how government works. I've worked on the state level. I interned on the federal level, which is not the same, but I'm a pretty quick study. But more importantly, I have a degree in public policy and I've studied administration. I know the contours of what leadership needs to look like. Uh, But most importantly, I know that I can't do everything myself and I will make certain that should this be something I, I try and should I be successful, we will build a team that will run this nation in a way that is actually worthy of this country. One more on that, and then I promise we'll get back to the book, but <laughs> okay. why not? I mean, we're here. So um, it's your job, Brooke. It's if, okay. you know, your life were columns and graphs and you're high in all these categories, what's the one that you wish you had fuller experience in X? Personal relationships dating. I... I mean, if you're running for president. I don't know if we care about that. Well, but here's... No, no, no. But but here's here's the thing. I say that to say that one of the challenges I've had is that when I was not successful at something is the only area where I abandoned the pursuit. And that means something to me. It means that part of my responsibility running for the presidency were I to be successful, I cannot allow lack of success and wholesale experience to diminish my capacity for learning and for being better at it. I know a great deal about foreign policy. I'm I'm a lifetime member on the Council on Foreign Relations. I've been a part of several organizations that have focused on foreign policy. I've written about foreign policy issues. I should not be made Secretary of State tomorrow, (laughs) Uh, but I would be a very effective leader and would know what to do. I've There's a couple jobs that are open. Apparently. (laughs) There's a whole department that... uh, I'm, I understand uh, I've spent time as state leader traveling the state, getting to know our 11 military installations, understanding what that means. I should not run the defense department, but I can understand what needs to be done. And again, who you should be looking to and listening to. Uh, I should not be in charge of the department of the interior. I appreciate the outside. I don't go there very often. Um, I got you. In your book, you share your own mistakes. So you write, the most significant successes come from letting your light shine, embracing failure, and getting good at being wrong. Yes. Stacey Abrams, in my line of work, you don't often hear politicians say, being, getting good at being wrong. How can politicians in 2019 practice this publicly, and how have you used your own mistakes in, in being who you are? First, you have to admit that you made a mistake. We are conditioned as constituents to not expect to hear that someone made a mistake. And that puts us in a bad position because when you can't make a mistake, people often try to cover them up. And so we end up with corruption, which is often just embarrassment that tries, I mean, sometimes it's just people are bad, but a lot of times what we see is that people made mistakes and they were doing their best not to create disappointment or to keep their jobs. And so as a democratic leader, when I made mistakes, I tried to own, I own them. I would say, here's what I did. And I would try to then learn what I needed to do next time. I've worked hard not to make the same mistakes over and over. I like to diversify. 
diversify your mistake making. <laughs> yes. As we all do. Uh, and so I think what we should expect of politicians is that we create space for them to say, I was wrong. Now, if your if your mistake was one of information, then work to show me you have the information. If your mistake is one of morals and lack of moral clarity, I don't know that you can learn morality. And so I need to understand, did you make the mistake because you legitimately misunderstood or did you make the mistake because you have no moral compass? Mm. If you lack a compass, you need to do something else. Mm. Um, but but that then means as constituents, we have to push our politicians to explain this to us because as long as we just paint everyone with the same brush, either we paint them too lightly and say it's just a you know bad actor or we treat everyone as though they're evil. If we don't create space for acknowledgement and improvement and atonement, then people don't get better. And we just cycle through bad instead of getting to great. I think as I'm listening to you talk about that, there's a part in your book where you, there are these three little words, I don't know. Yes. Uh, not something that comes easy to really anyone, not something that comes easy to women, not something that comes easy to black women. What's the point you make about, I don't know. So I, I was applying for a scholarship and they were asking me lots of questions. And finally I realized I learned like 13 different ways to say, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I do not know. I am unsure of that information. Uh, I won. And when they gave me the award, I'm like, <laughs> did you realize all the things I didn't know? And I actually asked the question of one of the judges. And he said, you have intellectual curiosity. Part of curiosity is being willing to admit that there is something for you to learn. And, and for me, it's no longer a badge of failure to say, I don't know, unless it's something I've purported to know. Like you should know how to do your basic stuff, but Part of being able to say I don't know is to, it's a signal that I want to learn more. I'm intellectually curious and I'm capable of expanding my mind. And sometimes that means changing your mind. And that's the other thing in politics and business. We don't create space for people to actually learn and with the infusion of new information to create new conclusions. I have been wrong on issues and I've had to think about why I thought what I thought and why this new information has improved how I think about it. And therefore I'm able to do something better with that information. Can you be specific? What issue most recently have you been wrong on that you've righted the wrong? I would say the most fundamental issue for me was uh, the issue of abortion and reproductive choice. I grew up in a family. I was very much anti-abortion. I still believe that you can legitimately not want that to be a choice you make. But what I did not understand because I never experienced it was that the question of choice is the fundamental question. And it took me having conversations and remembering other conversations I'd had when I'd been obstinate and unwilling to listen. And it reformed that I believe that it is not the role of the government to determine a woman's reproductive health. It is the role of their – it's just not. And as a very, as someone with very strong Christian values, as someone who's the daughter of two ministers from Mississippi, this is a very, this was a very transformative moment for me. I wrote myself an essay to figure out what I believed. 
It's a lot of writing <laughs> happening in Stacey Abrams' life. Because I needed to know, like, was I just changing my mind because I was thinking about politics? And the reality was no. I thought about this before I decided to run. I needed to understand why I thought differently. And part of it was I needed to understand how the political space operated. And the rubric for me was, should I be able to determine for everyone that these are the conditions under which they operate? Because that's what laws are. Laws are inviolate things that say that this is how we expect you to operate. And in this area, I will always have insufficient information to make that determination for another. You mentioned growing up in Mississippi and, you know, you write in your, in your books about growing up, your, your mom said genteel poor. Yes. Why did she, why genteel poor? <laughs> so my mom. Fancify it? Yeah. Well, so here's something my mom used to say. You know, poverty is a, is about your, how much money you've got, but how you react to being poor is about who you are. And what she wanted us to understand is that in the sort of, and you've got to remember this is the 1970s, 1980s and the South that you know, gentility was not about your condition. It was how you responded to it. Mm. And she wanted us to respond to it by having, and I, I don't mean this as a pejorative, but having class. She wanted us to read. She wanted us to experience. Uh, she and my dad both would create opportunities for us to go beyond what our economics said we should be. And for her, that that phrase was a way to call to mind her expectations and their expectations of us, that our economics had nothing to do with our capacity, our respectability. You know, it, it had nothing to do with anything other than what we could afford to buy. So this is exactly why I wanted to have you. I want you to tell this story because whenever people ask me, oh, you know, Stacey Abrams, I tell them this story I'm going to ask of you because to me, this is so much of it seems like who you are. So you're, so your mom's a library librarian. Dad was a shipyard worker. Um, and you are obviously, uh, this gifted young woman. You're in AP English. Yes. You know where I'm going. Yes. You're in AP English and you went on a silence strike. Yes. Tell, tell everyone the story. It's a good one. And how that applies to who you are today. I was a precocious child. And early on, so my mom was a college librarian. She was a reference librarian. At one point in my life, I decided I should know all the words in the English language, so I read the dictionary. I tend to absorb information and retain it fairly effectively. And so I had a very robust vocabulary. What was your favorite word at the time? Sesquipedalian. That's when you use big words. Exactly. Ding, 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 ding. See? There you go. You know. But it's also, it's a lovely word. It is. That and Sesquipedalian. Oh. Uh, which okay, means, now you're just showing off. No, anyway. I'm not. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just giving you two, the two words I like most. Because um, it's a word with no vowels, except for Y. See? Stacey Abrams, ladies there and gentlemen. Go. All right. Anyway. A AP English so class. So I'm sitting in class, and I would answer questions using the words that were the most precise to respond to my teacher or to engage in class. And she pulled me aside and said that I was making the other students uncomfortable because they didn't understand the words I was using. I'm like, I use context clues. I don't understand what the problem was. <laughs> and then I wrote an essay and she also gave me a C on my essay because she said I used too many big words. And I asked her, I'm like, am I using them out of context? She's like, no. I said, am I using them inappropriately? 
she said, no, is there something about how I'm communicating that isn't right? And she said, it's just uncomfortable for the other students and I need you to not do this. And so I agreed and I stopped talking. And so she would call on me in class and I would not respond. She would ask me to, to do things. I would not, I did not turn in my homework. I did not communicate with her for about two weeks. You went on a silent strike. I was silent because if I could not be who I was, then I was going to, I was not going to be. So it's a great story. So my parents get called to the school because <laughs> that is not how school works. Uh, and I, my parents asked. I'd given them a heads up because they weren't often called to, to go to school for me. And they were like, what did you do? And I said, I refused to speak. And my parents asked me why. And I explained all that happened because I hadn't told them about it. I just, I'd made up my mind. I was going to, if I could not use the words that I thought were appropriate, I was not going to use words. And they told her when they met with her and she explained, expecting them to make me speak. My parents said, we didn't raise Stacy to pretend to be something she's not. Mm. And she's not going to pretend to be dumb because you feel uncomfortable with how smart she is. It's a great story. So Thank how you. does it apply today? I'm not going to pretend not to be who I am. I mean, look, I, part of what I talk about is boldness and owning who you are. Now, look, if you're a jerk, don't do that. But do not, do not hide your light. Do not dumb yourself down. Do not pretend to be less than you are to accommodate those around you. There is a difference between being humble and being self-effacing. Self-effacing is this tendency, especially among women and people of color, where we try to make everyone comfortable by diminishing who we are, thinking that our diminution somehow equalizes us. All it does is it diminishes you. Humility says, I can be wholly who I am, but that doesn't make me better than anyone else. And that's what we should be striving for. I knew good words, but I wasn't the smartest person in that class. I just happened to have a set of skills that were endemic to me, and I should be allowed to use them. And her attempt to diminish me to create equalization was not fair. What she could have said is, can you make sure that when you do this, you do it in a way, like if she wanted me to just be better at it or better at providing context, that would have been fine. But the instinct that she had, because let's be clear, I was the only black kid in the class, was for me to be silent or to at least pretend to be less than I was so that others felt comfortable. Do not do that. That is not helpful to you. And it's also, it's insulting to those around you because they grow because of your growth. Iron sharpens iron. We are better when we are surrounded by people who are also striving to be better. That should be our mission. Um, people who criticized you because of your debt. I've heard that. Yes. I mean, can you just, before I even ask this question, you know, because, because student debt, uh, your, your parents taking care of your brother's Richard's daughter, Faith, Walter, Walter, forgive me, it's Walter. Okay. The um, fact that you remember my brother's names is actually impressive. Well, you so. thank him prof profusely in your acknowledgments. I mean, I read every word and, and. I do my homework, you know. I know. <laughs> and um, and so you talk a lot about debt. And you've taken the criticism and you've turned it on its head. And you make your points to your detractors that, one, you are showing how many people in your life you actually help within your community. And you talk – I don't think as many people – maybe it sounds like in your own circle knew how much you were 
helping financially uh, your loved ones. You show that the playing field isn't fair and you want young people to learn your lesson. And there's a whole chunk of this book about that. What do you want people to learn? Number one, debt is not shameful. Uh, debt is real. If we all had everything we needed, <laughs> we could all just go home. Um, our society is not organized for us to have everything we need and debt exists for a reason. It should not be something we celebrate, like some I could mention, but it's also not something to be ashamed of. And that's the first piece that it's going to be, it's going to happen. It may happen because of mistakes you've made. It may happen because of circumstances you can't control. It may just be something you inherited, but it's going to happen. So be prepared for it. Number two, Money does matter, but it doesn't matter in the ways we think. Part of what we have to learn is that if we are not to the manner born, if we do not have the resources we need, there, one, are ways to try to get them. But if you can't get them, do not let that dissuade you from finding ways around it. I had people I love tell me not to run for governor because of my debt, because they heard about it. Because I, I, I had a few trusted folks outside my normal circle and I didn't tell anyone. I mean, my, my campaign manager knew because I had told her everything before we ran. Uh, and some friends of mine knew simply because I wanted to kind of fill them out on it. And a few responded very negatively. And, and it worked for a minute. There was a moment where I thought, well, maybe, and I couldn't complete the thought because how are we going to ever have leaders who help us get out of debt if they don't understand what being in debt means? <laughs> Because for, forgive me, but you know your detractors would say, "How could this woman run, you know, a state when she's so deep in debt?" I would say there there is no one better with money than somebody without a lot of it. <laughs> because <laughs> I managed to take care of myself, my parents, my niece, all on the same salary, <laughs> and that's a lot of stuff. And and this happened after I'd bought a house, after I'd made some other choices, back when I had some money. Uh, and, and, and that's the thing. Part of it is the question isn't, am I in debt? Is, is it, it was, do I know how to manage my finances? I managed to talk to the IRS ahead of time. They didn't have to sue me. They didn't have to come after me. I told them what was going on mm -hmm. because I knew what the responsibility was. My father gets his treatments at the cancer treatment center regularly and he is alive and with me. And for God, I will thank God for that every day. Wonderful. My Wonderful. niece is healthy and thriving and she doesn't have to worry about whether the lights are going to get cut off and if she's going to have running water in the house the way we did when we were growing up. When my mother gets sick, I don't have to worry about whether we can get her to a doctor. Those are things that a good leader can do. Look after the people they're responsible for, make certain they meet their obligations and that they tell the truth about what those obligations are. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. You know, a lot of us walk around and we say, oh, we're so busy. We're so busy. You're pretty busy. And I love the part in the book where you talk about work-life balance. You say, I reject the idea of work-life balance. It's worse than a myth. The phrase is a bold-faced lie. Yes. You instead believe in, and I loved this game as a kid, child of the 80s, uh, instead you believe in work-life Jenga. Yes. You guys remember the game Jenga with the little <laughs> things you stick in and see, can, can you explain yes. your work-life Jenga? 
Okay, so work-life balance assumes that there's a scale and you put work here, life here, things work out. No. Um, no. Jenga is you stack everything up and you figure out all the things you want, all the ways you want to live your life, personal, professional, everything. And then you start pulling out those pieces that you want to do that day or that week or that year. And if you're careful, the st structure remains steady. I've never met anyone that good at Jenga. <laughs> What's eventually going to happen is you're going to pull the wrong thing out. And when you pull that block out, the whole thing's going to start to wobble. Part of understanding work-life Jenga is that it's okay because if it all falls down, you can just build it again. That's what work-life Jenga says to me. It is not that I have to not be, I mean, I'm a romance novelist, tax attorney, politician, entrepreneur. I'm a reality show waiting to happen. <laughs> New York Times bestselling author. There's that. And every piece that I pull out, every time I had to make a decision about my parents or about the business I wanted to start or running for office or not running for office, pulling out that block made everything a little less steady. But when you understand it's all unsteady, that this is all a fiction that we're telling ourselves that life is stable, then you get prepared for the fall. And when you're prepared for it, you can rebuild it pretty quickly and you learn how to build a better base. You realize which blocks need to be on the bottom, which are the most stable things that you have to do that you cannot leave behind. And then the next set are the things you want to do that are important to you, but you know, whatever. And then the top are the things you wish you could do, but these don't, aren't the things that wake you up. These aren't the things that make you angry or excited. And once you understand that, then the next time you play, it's a more stable structure. And every day you live, every mistake you make teaches you how to build a stronger structure so your work-life Jenga works. I love that. We're playing. That's so good. Um, all right. I'm ditching my questions now. This is the best part. These are your questions. So we're going to try to do this rapid-ish fire because I think there's there, we've got about five to ten minutes, and I know you want your questions answered. So you mentioned you're a romance novelist. Don't worry. I'm not going to pull a Colbert. Colbert. Thank you. <laughs> um, but... One of the questions is, how do you manage your romance novel writing with your political work? I've never seen them as being at all in conflict. I wrote during the, I wrote during law school. I wrote when I was a tax attorney. I wrote when I was a deputy city attorney. I wrote during my first years in the legislature. I stopped writing when I became leader, mainly because that was a big job. And I also launched a company at the same time. And of the things that was at the time the least, well, it's important to me, it was the least important it was also a time when my contract was being changed and I just couldn't keep up with what they wanted. Uh, but I will always be a writer and I may go back to romance writing. Will it you will be Selena be or Stacy? Selena, because that's a different part of who I am. Yeah. It's also, you know, reading romance by someone who also writes about Mesopotamian astronomy is just not that interesting. So, okay. Next question. Can you tell us about some unconscious biases you've discovered you have had and how you've overcome them? I think I've been working really hard most of my life to expand who I know and how I think about things. Probably the most intractable one was based on uh, party, political party. Uh, white men who were Republicans just to me seemed to be antithetical to who I was and what I wanted. And so part of my job as a leader, as a Democratic leader, even before I became the Democratic leader, I made it a mission to go and spend time with Republicans, mm -hmm. with white men Republicans, especially 
ones from parts of the state that I didn't really know that well. And so there's a gentleman, uh, two people, one's from East Cobb County, which is a very conservative part of Metro Atlanta. And then another gentleman who was from a farm, uh, Tom McCall, and I, we were on a trip together and I sat beside him and made him teach me everything he could tell me about agriculture. I can talk to you about center pivot irrigation for like 10 minutes now. Uh, <laughs> But for me, it was getting to know the humanity of the people around me as opposed to just their their labels. With that, I'm going to skip to this excellent question because I get asked this all the time. How do we stand strong and also contribute to a more civil national dialogue? You can disagree without being a jerk. I can disagree with people. My job was literally to disagree with the other side. And yet I worked hard to create space so that being dis being in disagreement was not being disrespectful. I respect the fact that you have values that are different than my own. Now, there are some things that you believe that I believe are fundamentally wrong and immoral. And when it's immorality, that's a different conversation. If it's a difference of viewpoint, respect that it's a difference of viewpoint and you don't have to convert people. Part of the responsibility is to understand it and to understand where it comes from. And the strategic imperative is if you don't understand it, you can't beat it. I try to make sure I know what you're doing and why you're doing it because that's the only way I'm going to figure out how to navigate around it and get what I need us to get because I want our side to win. So. How about this one? What advice do you have for young women trying to make a change in this country? I mean, Nike said it best, just do it. Um, but, but here's what that means. You can't solve every problem. You, you can't. But you can solve the problem that worries you the most. You can start to tackle it. You can tell your friends about it, not in a way that means that they don't invite you out anymore. But <laughs> find the way you work best and insert yourself. Troubles are always going to be with us. The issue is how often do we push back on them and make them less than? How do we show people who are the affected that we care? And so the more of us who do that with daily insistence, the, wor the work gets easier because more of us are doing it. But do not do something just because everyone is doing it and don't do something that you are not passionate about because you will get tired, you will get bored, and you will walk away. Do things that matter to you. And even if it matters to you and no one else, that's enough. And fill out your spreadsheets. Yes. Fill out I, your I find spreadsheets, spreadsheets to be a very helpful way of organizing what you do. Okay. But PowerPoint also works. <laughs> Okay. Two more. One more. I'm looking at you in the back. One, really two more, two I'll more. Do, okay. I'll go really fast. Okay. How will you translate the Georgia voter suppression issue beyond black voters? I've never relegated voter suppression to only black voters. The challenge has been that black voters have been the target in most states. Um, black voters are the most reliable voters for the Democratic Party. We are the most reliable rubric when you're looking at a spreadsheet of who's going to vote for whom. And therefore, for the communities that have been in power, largely Republican communities, black voters are not their friends, and therefore they have long been this, the primary target of voter suppression. But the danger and evil of voter suppression is that it gets all of us. It gets Republicans, it gets Democrats, it gets white folks, it gets Latinos, Asian Pacific Islanders, Native Americans. It gets us all and erodes our democracy. And so Fair Fight Action, the organization I created, is designed to fix elections, not fix elections for black people, but fix elections. Because if we don't save our democracy, we're all doomed. Mm. I'm... 
Speaking of our democracy, last question. What can people under 18 do to help people? Hold on a second. Forgive me. What can people under 18 do to help you help people vote? So we tripled youth participation rates in Georgia by 139%. Wow. Or increased about 139%. We had high school interns. We had young people across the state working with us. Tell us what you need. But more importantly, tell the people who have the right to vote to make the right decisions for you. You have the right to a better world. You have the right to a clean environment. You have the right not to be worried about violence in your schools. You have the right to believe that the future is possible. And you have the right not to be poor. Those are all issues that you have to talk about with your parents, with your friends who are old enough to vote, for your, with your older siblings who are going to hit 18 before you do. We have to believe from the very beginning that it is our place too. I got to speak at the March on Washington when I was 19 years old. I do not remember the experience because it is a terrifying thing to see that many people. But I will tell you that I will never forget the power I had in that moment to talk about the importance of young people's voices being heard. And I will believe until I am dead that the strongest voices are the voices of those who will live on after me to make the world better. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Stacey Abrams, the book is Lead from the Outside. Thank you. Thank you, Brooke guys. Brooke Baldwin, fantastic interviewer. Well done. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.